the title of my talk today is God Will Make a Way. The question I want to ask in starting into that talk is, has there ever been a time in your life when you felt overwhelmed by life? Has there ever been a time in life when you felt overwhelmed by life? I was doing this talk one time, and, and it was really funny. Somebody said, they yelled out, you mean like this week? And I'm like, yeah, this in your life kind of thing, because it happens. There are times in our lives when situationally, whether it's because of our own relationships, whether it's because of our own emotions, whether it's because of the spiritual life we're trying to follow, whether it's a physical situation, whether it's a financial situation, there are times when we find ourselves overwhelmed, just paralyzed. What are we going to do? Uh, it's happened a couple of times, and I've got a couple of big stories just from my life. I'm sure your stories are rich and vibrant, too. In the, uh, in the 80s, my wife and I were attending seminary in Dallas, Texas. I was studying to be trained for pastoral ministry. And like a lot of people in the U.S., uh, us in particular, we did not have extended medical health benefits. We were coasting on our Canadian medical provisions. Lo and behold, we found out uh, that we were going to have a baby. And as we listened to the obstetrician and talked about the costs of it, he informed us he would charge us $600 US for his services. And he thought if things were normal, probably it would be about a $900 bill for the, the hospital. And so it would be a $1,500 cost. And I remember checking with the provincial health care that was serving us, and they were going to reimburse a good chunk of it. And so I thought, well, why not? Let's go ahead and have a baby in the States. Uh, about three months, so at the six-month mark, while my wife Barb was in for the monthly obstetrician checkup, he informed us that we were going to have twins. <laughs> And it was Good Friday, I remember that, it was like Good Friday, and I thought that was a good thing, although my wife cried, I, I don't understand why, but I thought it was a good thing. And then because I have a, a brain that thinks about these, I said to him, so what is the cost going to be for twins? And he said, well, I got a deal for you, I got a two-for-one coupon, I'll still charge you 600 bucks, and if things go well, the hospital bill probably will be an extra $900, so you're probably looking at... Six, nine, about $2,400. I had saved up the, the year before while going to school in the States, working 20 hours a week and three months in the summer. I was on a student visa. We had grossed $7,000. And knowing that we we're having a baby, I had been trying to each month save. So the $1,500 number wasn't out of range for us. And even $2,400. And I thought to myself, rather than us trying to get back to Canada, why don't we just ride it out? Because it just seems to make more sense. So that was the plan. Uh, about six weeks before the babies were due, Barb went into labor, uh, April the 23rd. And I remember because she was feeling that way, we went to the hospital, we met with the doctor, and he said to us that night, he says, well, it looks like we're going to have a couple of babies tonight. And I didn't understand the complications. I thought, well, that's great, six weeks early, because I didn't understand the consequences then. Our twin daughters were born, 
And because they were six weeks younger than they needed to be, they needed to stay for 10 extra days in the neonatal unit just to get their lungs into shape and the proper things. And again, I didn't sense the, the mammothness of what we were engaging there. So on the day that they were to be released, the hospital policy, my wife was home, we'd been going in every day, the hospital policy was you need to go down to the business office and settle up before we release your children. So I went down to the business office, and remember I said I made $7,000 last year. The business official said to me, here's your bill, $11,497. And I was overwhelmed. I, 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 I quickly said, ah. I mean, you just get speechless. And then I did another thing, which sometimes people do when they're overwhelmed. I started laughing. I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard, $11,000. To put it into contemporary numbers, if you make 7000 and you make 70000 today, I mean, it's not quite the same, but we'll say that's equivalent. Can you imagine that you're leaving church and somebody gave you a bill for $110,000? He said, oh, by the way, you owe $110,000. And the hospital policy was, we don't release the children until you pay the bill. And I looked at them, and, and I said, I don't know what to do. And I said, I have $1,500 cash. I have a car that I'm willing to sell for $2,500. I'm $7,000 short. And the person said, would you consider making payments? And I'm like, Payments? Am I buying a car here? Like, she says, no, no, would you make payments? How much can you afford? And I said, I think I can afford $100 a month. And so for the next 72 months, we made payments on our kids. And when they turned six, we celebrated that we paid off that loan kind of thing. It's like, <laughs> time for a new kid. We were six years in. <laughs> but I remember at the time feeling overwhelmed. Just, what do I do? This is crazy. I have no clue how to process this. I'll tell you a second story. It, it happened just a few years ago. It's a little closer. Uh, I am the firstborn son in a family of five. I have two older sisters, but fairly traditional family. I was perceived as the, the male that looked after things. And, and deal with it. It's not right, but it is what it is. So just leave it at that, okay? So I was the, the male. And when I was uh, 22, my father died at 59. He had a heart attack, hit the floor, was gone. My mother was 54. She was a school teacher. And it kind of was my job to look after my mother. My two older sisters says, that's your job. And it wasn't onerous. I took it on as the firstborn male. And my mother, you, you got to kind of remember, I'll picture it for you. She was 54. She'd been a school teacher all her life. And she kind of reminds me of Granny Clampett. Do you know Granny Clampett? Like she was five foot one, 100 pounds, soaking wet kind of thing. And just didn't take any guff from anybody. She'd been teaching school, high school all her life. And she continued to teach. No. I said, Do you want? no, I'm fine, kind of thing. She continued her independent way as a widow. Uh, she retired at 64. She quit early in her mind. Really? Okay. Kind of thing. And in her retirement, we, she's from northern Ontario, she chose to buy what's called a sunset villa in Florida, which is code for trailer, right? It's a sunset villa in a trailer park. It's a, it's a trailer, mom. It's a, tra it's a sunset villa. And for the next, oh, 15 years, every October, she'd get into her van and she would drive from northern Ontario down to southern Florida to winter. She was a snowbird. 
And I would periodically say to her, Mom, when you don't feel like you can live on your own anymore, you're going to come live with Barb and me and our kids kind of thing. And she's like, oh, that would cramp my style. I'm not doing that kind of thing. Well, it's still an offering. Um, when she was about 85, something upsetting happened to her. Her van, which was I mean, every three years she's buying a new minivan, putting less than 10,000 miles a year on it, but it's her, it's her money, she decides it. And somebody smashed her driver's window, glass everywhere, had got inside and stolen her purse with all of her ID. She was ticked. This is Granny Clampett, like, I catch that guy that did that to me, kind of thing. And it was a hassle because she had to get the the glass replaced and all of her ID, you know, you lose your driver's license, you lose your credit cards. On one level, it's criminal. On another level, it's just a huge hassle. And so she was interpreting as a really upsetting, maddening kind of thing. Until about two weeks later, one of her well-meaning friends said to her, you know, they know where you live. <laughs> exactly. And suddenly, that spirit of independence turned into a spirit of fear. Every time she went out, she didn't know if she came back, her sunset villa might be ransacked. At nighttime, when in the middle of the night, a branch may be scraping against the side of the trailer, is that somebody trying to break in? And so she lived with it for a couple of months until Christmas. She phoned me, and she said, I'm moving in. I said, what? This is... I'll be there in January. I said, what? He said, whoa, Grandma, pump the brakes here. What do you got? And she told me what had happened and what she wanted. And I said, I need some time to get ready. And so as a labor of love, uh, I took the house, and many of you can relate to this, the house we lived in, and I put in a small granny suite in the basement. I put my tool belt on for the next three months. I built a suite for my mother. It was, it was personal. And you're right, I'm deeply invested in this. And uh, she came to live with us. And for the next year, she lived with us as part of her family in her own suite. And then... Real fast, she had a massive stroke and died. Like it was just like a year later. And I remember the day after it happened, we, we, we used to, when we lived in our own single family, we live in a condo now, but in a single, we always had a big, huge garden because I like to grow things. And we had a, we had a pretty big garden because if you're going to go, go big was always my experience. You know, you can just give it away if you make too much. And usually in the springtime of the year when it was time to get garden ready, I would pay somebody 50 bucks, they'd bring the rotor tiller in and they would till it over because it was a big plot of land. And this time, uh, my brain was in such a space that I decided every night after work, I would take a shovel put a t-shirt and a pair of shorts on and just dig garden. And for the next three nights, it was me and my shovel and t-shirt and shorts in the back garden until it was dark. And I would be swatting mosquitoes and turning things over and come in at night and I would have a shower and go to bed. And my daughters noticed that behavior. And they knew it was strange because dad's pretty social and pretty engaging, but he was behaving very weirdly. And uh, the one daughter who was married turned to her husband at the time, and he showed a lot of wisdom. He says, what's up with my dad? And he said to her, he said, he's lost his mother. He's, he's grieving. He's working on his grief. And I, yeah, it took me a while to get over it. I didn't know what to do. I was overwhelmed. And I tell you those stories, not to dramatize me. Please, it's not about me. It's not, but, but there are times in our lives when stuff comes into our lives that you, you wonder, I can't get over this. I need to get through it. How do I get through it? Some things you don't get over. You just hope by God's grace to get through them. 
And some of those situations are individual, probably in your lives. You can think of moments, maybe in the past, maybe in the present. You think, some of it may be in your extended family. People are going through things. Yeah. It might be physical. As your health deteriorates or somebody's health close to you deteriorates, it creates all kinds of overwhelmingness. What are we going to do kind of thing? Maybe it's financial. Boy, it can look like the abyss in front of you. What are we going to do? Sometimes congregations get overwhelmed. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? This morning I want to address that, and as the title of my sermon is God Will Make a Way. And the verse I'd like you to turn your attention to is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I took the liberty of, of putting it on the screen over top of us. So, fellas, can we do that? Good. Um, it would help me out if we literally in unison would read the Word of God today out loud. So let's read all together. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. As I've been thinking about that verse, I just, there's tons of things that I want to pull out. And I've got five things that I just want to pull out for you. And they're really just the words from the scripture. Point number one, he, he talks about a temptation. A temptation. And whenever we hear that word, we often think of something really scuzzy and really destructive and ooh, black and icky. And hmm, the word Paul uses here really has two ways of going at it. You could, you could go the dark side to destructiveness, or you could go a different side to maybe the word challenge. The word temptation here can be, can be interpreted both ways, and I'm wondering if he doesn't have both in mind, because a temptation, here's my definition, are a set of circumstances that come into your life that have the potential to tip you over. A temptation is a set of circumstances that come into your life that have the potential to tip you over. Sometimes they're negative. Sometimes they can lead to destruction. For instance, if you're on a diet, it's New Year's, you're on a diet, and for the last three days, you've eaten nothing but celery and water. You're feeling pretty good. You've knocked off about three pounds of weight, and this celery and water diet is really working for you, right? Oh, yeah, really working for me. And you come into your fridge, and you pull open the door, and somebody's bought a half dozen cream puffs, and you're like, oh, oh. That's a set of circumstances that can tip you over kind of thing, yeah. Or maybe more seriously, maybe, maybe you're a person that's figured out over the years that not only do you like your beverages, the alcoholic beverages like you. And you've got to do something about that. It's not working. And you go up with a friend, they say, what can I get you? Can I get you a beer, a glass of wine, a bottle of water? And I'm not judging, I'm just saying it's a set of circumstances that come into your life that have the potential to tip you over. For some of the people in the room, you fire up your desktop, your laptop, whatever is your phone, and there's buttons that you can click and websites you can go to have the potential to tip you over. And sometimes it's even deeper than that. For some of us, and I don't say some of you, I say some of us, some of us have a deep, 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 deep desire to be loved. 
And circumstances come into our lives where the person, the situation could, might take advantage of that. And you find yourself saying yes to things you didn't want to say yes to, doing things you didn't want to participate with. It's your deep desire to be loved. I need to be loved. For others of us in the room, we have this hugely competitive spirit. <laughs> We're competitive. Um, my brother, I have a younger brother. He's, what, 20 months younger than me, and we're guys, and, and I'm on it, and we're competitive. And we used to play chess together. You play chess kind of thing. And um, I was a little older and been playing a little longer, so more times than not, I would have the leg up. And one time we're playing chess, and we're looking at the board, and I said, check, mate. And I, I'm kind of hard, I mean, I'm, I'm being a little bit chirpy and cheeky. I won't lie to you and things like that. And he's looking at the board, and, and he says to me, no, it's not. No, it's not. And I'm like, really? And he says, he wipes all the pieces out of the word. No checkmate there. And I'm thinking, ooh. For some of us, I need to be right. I need to win. I need to be the winner. Circumstances come into our lives that can tip us over. Sometimes it's really neutral things, circumstances. You know, you go up to the car in the morning and you got to get to your appointment and the back left tire is flat. You're like, really? You know. Um, sometimes you're looking after your children and your seven-year-old comes up with a horrendous experience of health. There's just stuff everywhere and, oh my goodness, and you've got to be here and they've got to be there. Sometimes the economy sours and the company you're working for decides to lay off 25% of its workforce and guess where you are? in the 75 and the 25. What, what, what Paul is talking about here is that there are things that come into our lives that have the potential to throw us off balance. They can really tip us over. Hmm. But he points out, and this is my second point, he says that there's no temptation come into our lives, but such as is common to mankind. Point number two, they just underline that word common to mankind. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a truth today in our society, and it's right, is that everybody's unique. You're right, everybody is unique. Uh, a few years back, I was doing some consulting work in the House of Commons in Ottawa, working with some of the officials there. And in order for me to be allowed to do that, they took my fingerprints. And uh, so I'm on record, you know, I got a record with the RCMP, if anybody needs to be clear about that. Yeah, Jamie's on record kind of thing. But their point was, in order to be able to identify you, we're going to use your fingerprints because they're unique to you. Nobody else has them. That's true. Um, I mentioned earlier ago that we gave birth to identical twin girls. That's true. They're they have the same father, they have the same mother, they have the same set of DNA, and yet they're totally different individuals. Uh, everybody's unique. Even though we're all human beings, it's funny how your story has shaped you, and so your story is different than her story, and his story is different than his story. I get that kind of thing. We're all unique. However, having said that, the Scripture says there's stuff that happens that we all experience. There's no set of circumstances that come into our lives that nobody else has ever experienced anywhere else, even though to us it feels like we're the only one. He says it's common to mankind or common to humanity. And what I want to draw from that is that there's a strange comfort that whatever you're going through today or whatever you've gone through in times past, 
Whatever this congregation is going through, we might think is, we're the only ones. The truth is, and I'll pick on the personal individual, whatever you're going through today, it's a strange comfort to know that there's probably somebody else or others in this room that gets it because they've gone through it themselves. You're not alone. And I can't guarantee that everybody understands everything about you because that would be, that would be absurd. But I'll bet you whatever you're going through, chances are there's somebody in this room maybe going through it with you in their own way or have already gone through it. And they do understand you. And the truth is, when you've gone through things, it doesn't galvanize you and shut you off. You now have capacity to be incredibly supportive. Um, I grew up in the 70s. I apologize for dating myself. Do you remember Bill Withers? Lean on me. When you're not strong, I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on. You might have a problem, but I understand. We all need somebody to lean on. There's no temptation that such is not common to man. Everything we face is unique to us, but it's common to mankind. Oh, there's a strange comfort there. There's a third thing in this verse. I want to pull it up. Point three. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In the midst of you, God comes in. And, and, and the Bible makes a statement about God. And we know the God of the Bible. He's just. He's loving. He's powerful. He's righteous. How about this verse? He's faithful. You can count on him. He's reliable. Really? What for? You can count on him that he will not let you be tilted or tempted more than you're able. He knows how much you can take. My dad was a, an engineer, and he was a mining engineer, which is how we got to northern Ontario. And in the small town we lived in, there weren't many professional engineers. And because even in those days you needed an engineer to sign off on certain actions, he would periodically sign plans for the town of Blind River we grew up in. They needed a professional engineer to certify the plan. They would sometimes come to him and ask him to sign on a bridge building project. And he would say, I'm a mining engineer, not a civil engineer. I'm not a structural engineer. But he had one course in civil engineering during four years of university training. And then secondly, during the war, because he was an engineer, he'd been in the Royal Corps of Engineers, and his job was he was an officer. They would go into blown-up areas over rivers, over roads. They would be the second one in behind, and they would build what were called Bailey Bridges over cavernous places. And it would allow trucks and troops to be transferred across. And if you have any experience in bridge building, a Bailey Bridge is a, is a very common bridge. It's like Lego. It's, you don't need a lot of brain. Just click, 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 click. And the biggest issue is knowing how much capacity the bridge has to hold. Because if you build a bridge and you put too much weight on it, <clears throat> kind of thing, doesn't matter how pretty it was. And you can build long bridges as long as you have the right bases in the place kind of thing. And so what my dad used to tell me was that you can do anything you want as long as you have the capacity to hold it. God knows your capacity. 
He will not allow something to roll across you that he does not have confidence that you can carry it. And you say, really? Yeah, really. He has the understanding of you and me. He is able, he has more knowledge of you and me than we do of ourselves. And more faith than you, than we ourselves have. And you say to God, I can't take it. He says, actually, you can trust me. God is faithful and will not allow you to be tilted beyond what you're able. That's a powerful truth. And that's not a statement about humanity. That's a statement of God. And point number four, in the midst of it all, it says, in the midst of it all, he will provide a way out or a way through, as I say. God will make a way through things. Sometimes he does it externally. He, he brings things into our lives that are, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. A solution out of nowhere. And I call it external. It's like, yeah, coincidence. <laughs> there's, there's a great story, and, and, and I, I tell it, it's a preacher's story. It's, a, you know, dear old saint, he loved Jesus, trusted God, and the word came through the system that there was going to be a flood. The rivers are going to overflow, and they recommend, the officials recommended everybody leave town for sake of safety. But he was going to trust God, because he didn't need to do what humans wanted to see done. He was going to trust God. And the floodwater started to come, and eventually they got up over the porch of his house, so he was in water, and he climbed onto the roof of his house. And he was still 15, 20 feet above, above the floodwaters, and he's on the roof. And uh, a guy came by in a, motor, in a canoe. And start paddling by and says, here, come on, jump in, I'll rescue you, kind of thing. The guy, that's oh, good, I'm trusting God, it's, it's all good, I got God on my side, kind of thing. And the canoeists kept on going, the waters came up, and now it's at the, the gunnels, or the, the eaves troughs. And the city officials come by in a motorboat, a big motorboat, and they're, bum, bum, climb in the boat, we'll take care of you, we'll rescue you. And he says, it's okay, I got God, I'm trusting God to take me through this, kind of thing. And they're like, no, get in the boat, it's going to get higher, it's okay, I got God. And so they sailed off, kind of thing. And finally, the water's coming right up to the very peak of the roof. There's like, and he's got a foot on each side of it. And he's standing there. And a helicopter comes by with a chair saying, grab hold of the chair. We'll rescue. It's okay. I'm trusting God. And the flood kept rising and he died. He, he died. And he went to heaven. And he says, Jesus, what happened? And Jesus, I don't know. I sent a canoe. I sent a motorboat. I sent a helicopter. I'm really puzzled. What are you doing here? Kind of thing. Sometimes God puts into our lives external solutions. People come into our lives that may be people of faith. They may not be people of faith, but they're still God's way through. Swallow your pride. Accept God's gift to you. Sometimes he gives us internal solutions through. And what I'm getting at is the Holy Spirit in the midst of the pressure grinding away on us, we're overwhelmed. Something as a moment of intuition, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden, click, it becomes clear to you, we need to do this, and you do it. Not because somebody told you to do it, not because somebody made you do it. You believe that this is the way through things. We're going to do this. And I call that an internal, that's God's giving you a way through, externally and internally. He takes care of you. He takes you through it. Um, hmm. There's a fifth point here. The ultimate outcome, that you may be able to endure it. And that last piece is so clarifying. God prepares things to allow you to get through them. 
Does he take it away? No, not always. Not every time. Sometimes he asks us to go through it. Winston Churchill was Prime Minister of England, Great Britain, during the darkest, at least in the 20th century, hours of that country. And he used to say, when you're going through hell, don't stop. Go through it. We laughingly in the 21st century say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And it doesn't kill you. Thank God it didn't kill me. I survived. I got through it. Some things you don't get over, you just get through. Hmm. I thought we're supposed to be victorious in everything. Sometimes being alive is a victory. I have a friend who's an airline pilot, and we laugh about this. He flew for Air Canada forever. And, uh, old pilots are often like smarty pants. And, and it's a standard definition. Maybe you've heard it used. He says, what's the definition of a successful landing? He says, anytime you walk away from the plane, that's a successful landing. Kind of thing. I said, well, that covers a lot of landings. He says, you betcha. But if I walk away from the plane, I've been successful. The plane is secondary. Yeah. Walking away or walking through a set of circumstances is a success. You learn what you learn. The people of God over the, the the, the centuries have, have, have modeled it for us. The, the people of God left the nation of Egypt trying to get to the promised land and they come to the Red Sea. <sighs> but they got through it. God made a way. Uh, the people of God came to the River Jordan. God opened it up for them. The people of God saw their Savior crucified on Good Friday and stood there with their minds just frozen. What are we going to do? And by Easter Sunday, God had made a way for them. And so I want you to take that as the truth today. God will make a way through. I do not by whom or how, but I do know that he will. And so the invitation of Scripture today personally and congregationally is We need to look for God in the midst of this to see how he's going to take us through these times. And I have confidence, more confidence in him than I do in myself. Because it's his nature. He's faithful.